Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, brief housekeeping. Last week we ran an experiment with a live Zoom call, which many of you seem to enjoy. I hear the chat was delightfully anarchic. I didn't see any of it myself. I was too busy Zooming, but I'm told it ran off the rails in in some ways, but to the amusement of many. And my surprise guest for that conversation was Glenn Lowry, who always makes sense. Thanks again to Glenn for taking the time. Anyway, that was fun, and I think we'll continue doing that periodically. And these conversations will not be released on any other platform. They're not going to be on YouTube. I don't think they'll live on my website. I, I Part of the point for me is to have them be totally informal and ephemeral. So this is one of those situations where you're either there at the time or not. But that seems like the best use of the format. Okay. Well, today I'm speaking with John McWhorter. John is a professor of linguistics at Columbia University. He's also a contributing writer at The Atlantic, and he hosts the podcast Lexicon Valley. Anyway, as you'll hear, I'm quite excited to get John finally on my podcast, and he did not disappoint. The man is a fount of good sense on the topic at hand, which is what he calls the new religion of anti-racism in America. And we discuss many aspects of this topic. We talk about how conceptions of racism have changed over the years, and now the ubiquitous threat of being branded a racist. We talk about the internal contradictions within identity politics. We talk about the strange willingness among progressives to lose the 2020 election. We discuss racism as the all-purpose explanation for racial inequality in America, double standards for the black community, the war on drugs, the problem of police violence, and our misconceptions about it, the enduring riddle of affirmative action, the politics of blackface, and other topics. Anyway, I really loved this conversation, and I think you might as well. And now I bring you John McWhorter. I am here finally with John McWhorter. John, thanks for coming. My pleasure. As uh, you know, and I think other people know as well, there, there, there's been a, a standing invitation to have you on the, the <laughs> podcast. I have long celebrated your contributions to our public conversation. and. Thank uh, you, but you, you have been a, um, a coy podcast guest, so <laughs> we were just talking uh, you know, offline a moment ago. What finally uh, changed your attitude toward doing this? Well, you know, it's really, it's pretty mundane. I think to an extent that would surprise some people, I am a very meat and potato sort of person. What I most enjoy doing is sitting in a chair and either reading a book or writing. And there's a part of me that always thinks that what I'm supposed to be is a writer. Mm. And I've been doing this for about 20 years now, this, this race commentary. And I've slowly seen that it's gotten to the point that you have to deal with the spoken word, that to really be part of the conversation, you can't just write anymore. You also have to talk. And I'm always a little bit behind when it comes to 
technological things in general and also the fact that I really do, I am so happy to be here right now, but for me, writing is more fun than talking because you have more control over it. So for a very mm -hmm. long time, I've thought of podcasts, even though I do one of my own, as kind of the other thing. I figure my writing will stand in for me better than anything that I could say off the cuff. But I've come to realize that podcasts now occupy the place that writing did a long time ago. And that if I'm not going to do podcasts other than my own, then I might as well not be trying to communicate anything. So I'm trying to change my ways, and especially in the case of people like you who do this so well. But it's taken me a while. There's a part of me that really just wants to be sitting in a chair with my nose in a book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I can certainly echo that in my case. I think I'm just a little bit ahead of you in having this epiphany. <laughs> I mean, if the goal is to actually reach people and alter the currency of good and bad ideas, diminishing the latter, I, you, you just have to go where the minds are. And it's just, you know, yep. it, we just reach so many more people this way. So I, this, this is great. I'm very happy to finally have you here. And it's your, one of the, the background facts to this conversation is you are, as a writer, working on a book that the, the world is truly waiting for. I, mean, I, 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 <laughs> I don't know of another example in my lifetime of, you know, knowing someone is busily scribbling and knowing <laughs> the truly oppressive need to take delivery of this manuscript out in the world. Is there any undue pressure on your side here? It was just to give, not to give more away than, than uh, you want to in this conversation, but you are, no, no. you're working on a book that is, I'm hoping, uh, and you've, you've telegraphed a little bit on this point, will be the argument we're waiting for against what you've called the, the new religion of anti-racism. Mm -hmm. And uh, how's it going, and, and how's it feeling to be writing, you know, as the, the flames of, <laughs> of moral confusion crest the hills and begin descending <laughs> upon uh, our sleepy little hamlet? What a calendar year this is. I, I don't think I've ever been asked how a book I was writing was going, but the truth of the matter is that I feel no pressure. If anything, it's coming out as if it was driven by some kind of water pressure, like from a showerhead. I am on fire with this one, and I can barely keep ahead of the news in terms of what I'm writing about and why it upsets me and why I think people need to hear what I have to say. This one just came. I told my agent, I can't help it. I know there are going to be people who hate me for this, but I have got to write this one. It's going to come out of me. What are we going to do with it? And so, yeah, chapter five fell out of me last week, and that's the fifth of six chapters. And so I'm pretty much finished. And really, this book is just going to get across that this critical race theory-infused way of looking at things, where people who are like Mitt Romney are on top, and everybody else is laboring on the bottom like slave oarsmen in some ship a very long time ago, and that our notion of identity has to be about defining ourselves against the white hegemon. And the idea that we're supposed to go back to thinking of ourselves as stamped by what our racial membership is in exactly the way that old-time Southerners wished that black people would. The whole dialogue is something that enlightened people are going to have to learn how to stand down if mm. we're not going to go over a certain precipice. And I try to get across in the book, and this is something that I hope people won't miss, that there's no point in 
viewing the people who I'm calling the elect. You might call them the wokesters, etc. For me, it's the elect, because they do think of themselves as elect in that way. It's not, it doesn't make any sense to see them as monsters, to say that they're coming for your kids, which they are, but to say that they're coming for your kids is not to imply that they're trying to do some kind of harm, that they have frowns on their faces. They really do think of themselves as ahead of the curve. They think of themselves as bringing a kind of good news, and that's with a capital G and a capital N, to the world. And they can't be reasoned with, is important. We have to realize that there's no point in trying to have conversations with people of those politics, of that philosophy, along the lines of saying that they need to understand that we should enshrine free speech. There's no point in saying to them, why can't you be open to other opinions? That makes as much sense as trying to teach a fundamentalist Christian that they shouldn't have faith in Jesus, literally. And I don't mean that Mm. rhetorically. There is no point in engaging with people of these kinds of politics. What we have to do is work around them so that we can go on forging progressivism of the kind that we thought could bear fruit and what that means. And this is the final chapter, and it's going to actually be the toughest one because I want it to be constructive rather than destructive, is that we've got to learn how to stand up to these people and say no. And it can't only be the occasional weird person like you or me who doesn't mind an argument and for some reason doesn't mind when people yell at them. Everybody's going to have to learn that you stand up to this sort of person, you tell them that you are not going to agree with them, and that includes that you do not think of yourself as, for example, a racist. And then this is something that is going to be a major adjustment. And goodness, we've had to make a lot of adjustments this year. But I think it's important that people learn how to make an adjustment, which is that they're going to get called a white supremacist, for example. You're going to get called a dirty name by a person who's usually educated and or very articulate, and they're going to call it to you loudly. They're going to say it again, and they're going to spread it on Twitter. We have to realize that that can happen without the sky falling in. And I'm gathering examples of people who actually have the nerve to stand up to it, who keep their jobs, who watch progressivism continuing to happen. Because if we don't do this, we're going to see our institutions taken over by this perversion of what progressivism is, by people who genuinely think of themselves as doing good. But we can't be scared of being called a racist to such an extent that we let all of this utterly misguided, under-thought-out, manipulative nonsense shape what we thought of as intellection, the arts, and moral philosophy. Hmm. Yeah, well, so I should remind people of your background as a linguist, because it's relevant here, because the, this trend we are opposing, in so many cases, seems to have language on its side, right? And you, I, I can only mm-hmm. imagine that you as a linguist must be amazed at some of the, the clever, if not you know, albeit cynical moves made with language here and, and the, the kinds of people who get taken in by them. So mm-hmm. there's a few examples I have in my head here. I mean, one recently on Twitter, you may have noticed that Joyce Carol Oates, the um, quite famous, accomplished, well-regarded fiction writer, lacking any irony or, or self-awareness, wrote on Twitter the other day that Antifa means anti-fascist, right? So, that, like, so mm-hmm. there could be nothing wrong with this group simply because mm-hmm. of how they had branded themselves. And um, I think there you and Steve Pinker should probably <laughs> show up at her house for, <laughs> for an intervention. <laughs> I mean, that's just amazing to see. But even more widespread is the effectiveness of the branding of Black Lives Matter, right? As though 
I mean, it has this exact same pretense of being morally unassailable. And everyone seems to be taken in by it. I mean, to say any word of criticism about Black Lives Matter as an organization or as a movement or, you know, with respect to its tactics or, or you know, extreme positions held by some of its loosely affiliated members, to utter anything other than mere assent to the branding is to be on the back foot trying to argue that you're not racist. And it's, it's very clever and, and really insidious. So I would just, what has been your, your linguistic ride through this morass in the last few months? Well, you know, I wish that I could talk about dynamic and frightening synergy between the use of language and the ideology here in question. But to tell you the truth, I think that a lot of it really is just a matter of what people's ideas are. Now, to an extent, People are seduced into thinking these are valid notions because of, you know, large, often Latinate words. You know, intersectionality is a pretty cool word. If you don't want to, say, tear things down or if you want to feel like you're doing something constructive by teaching people to walk around feeling guilty about their privilege, then saying dismantling structures Mm. is satisfying. I don't think it's even cynical. I think it's satisfying because dismantle and structure are biggish words, and they've got a certain crispness in them. So you can say dismantling structures. And that kind of holds a lot of people off because you are, and this is the main thing, I don't think it's so much language, it's that people are afraid. We have gotten to this weird point. It's, it's very interesting. Starting in the 1970s and continuing through the 80s, we have this massive psychosocial revolution in this country, unprecedented in the history of the human species. And that is that the typical person comes to think of it as a horrible thing to be called a racist, practically like being called a pedophile. That's, that's progress. It doesn't mean that their mm. minds are completely swept of all possible racist feeling. But that was new. And it's at the point where people even under 50 are beginning to forget how new that was. Forget if you're under 30, but that was new. But once you've got everybody in that place, now here comes something a few beats later where what it threatens you with is you being tarred as a racist in public. That wouldn't have been processed as such a threat in even 1980. A lot of people would have just said, basically, if you think I'm a racist, fuck you. And mm. we think of that person when we look back and we think of them as callous, and they would have been. But now, ordinary people, the ordinary good person is so scared that they will do things that they don't mean. They will say things that they don't believe. And so one of them is that you don't say anything about what can be put under that umbrella of Black Lives Matter. And it's not necessarily that people don't, in some part of their mind, understand that a lot of this stuff doesn't make any sense, but they're afraid. They're afraid of being called a name. They would rather avoid being called a name than make sociopolitical sense. And part of why it gets up my nose, as Mrs. Slocum used to say in Are You Being Served, the British sitcom, part of what gets up my nose is that it's condescending. What any white person who is paying court to this sort of thing is doing is saying black people don't have to make sense. It seems like black minds don't matter. So mm -hmm. I will say anything that I need to say to keep these people from embarrassing me in public and making me feel bad about myself. And if it doesn't make any sense, well, black people kind of don't, do they? I'll bet some people in their bedrooms are saying that when black people can't hear. And yet we're not supposed to talk about that either. So it's all very disturbing, but I don't think, and Sam, this is, we, we may differ on this, we may not. I don't think it's cynical. I think very few of these people are thinking to themselves, we are going to take power and we're going to do it by manipulating language and by 
playing with people's minds. I think these people are quite sincere, and that's what makes it harder. It's almost harder to have to hurt somebody's feelings when they genuinely think that they're giving you a present. But unfortunately, mm. the people in this case who think they're giving us a present are, you know, some of them are very naive. I think more of them are, if they're white, they're hell-bent on feeling good about themselves as not racist, and they'll let that trump sense. If you're a black person who subscribes to this sort of thing, you have been tricked by this sort of person and a lot that was going on, going on before into thinking that what makes you significant and what makes you special is your victim status rather than you as yourself. That's understandable given black people's history that you might need to reach a little further than some people to find a sense of well-being and significance and security. It's completely understandable. But hmm. that means in this case that a lot of people think that the most interesting thing about themselves is what they suffer in terms of what people who aren't them are or maybe aren't thinking. That's not a healthy self-identity. So all of this is just a complete mess, but no one is malevolent in these cases. We're not dealing with cynics. We're dealing with people who are tragically misled. Hmm. That's really interesting. I, I think on the cynicism point, maybe I'm putting the line between good and bad faith at a slightly different point. I guess, so let's just, well, I want to plunge into a, a conversation about racism here and, and you know, what, the, what it means as a, as a term, what it should mean, and just how the, the, kind of the mission creep of the concept is causing mm -hmm. a, a lot of suffering. To step back for a second, I'm, the reason why I want to talk about this is I'm, I'm really worried about this trend we're speaking about, about the, the capture of our institutions and our language by this, I would say, cultic behavior. I mean, so, you know, I've referred mm -hmm. to it as the cult of wokeness. You're talking about the, Very the, much, the yeah. new religion of anti-racism. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a kind of moral extortion going on and, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, a Stockholm syndrome. And I mean, all of these, you know, analogies seem apt. And I'm worried about it for two reasons. One, I'm worried, you know, in the near term, that it will be the thing that gets Trump reelected. And I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I put myself in second position to, I think, no one in my desire to see, to see Trump's <laughs> political career ended in November. I think it'd be nice, but yes. I, I really do think that, you know, this will be w why we get four more years of the Orange Goblin in the White House. But beyond that, and it, a much longer-term concern is that I think it is doing and will do damage to race relations in this country. And it'll do precisely the damage that I think it's pretending to expose in many cases. And the analogy that came to mind recently I was on someone else's podcast, and I just wound up blurting this out, but I think I, I stand by it. I mean, the, what, what I feel like it is happening over the course of many months is analogous to what happened, you know, on a single ghastly afternoon when the OJ verdict was delivered, right? Mm -hmm. When you saw, you saw, you know, I mean, those of us who are, you know, old enough remember this, as I, I assume you do, I mean, mm -hmm. we saw on, you know, split screen on um, you know every television in the country, we saw this these opposing reactions to a mm -hmm. single you know moment, and to see and, and and so when white America, you know, I mean obviously there were exceptions in in both camps, no doubt, but the general experience was of white America seeing black America erupt in jubilation over this verdict. Yeah, 
and this is where this is why I use the term cynical here because it's not that you can't explain that reaction in terms of you know all the terrible inequality and grievance that has preceded it right i mean we we have the history of of white and black America to explain that moment, but within the frame of that trial and that verdict and that moment, there was something cynical about it because I think it was widely understood, if not universally understood, that he was obviously guilty, right? And Mm -hmm. everyone knew it, and everyone knew that everyone else knew it. And so there was (laughs) no sense that all of these black faces that were, you know, tearful in joy over the outcome here thought that this man hadn't nearly decapitated his wife and a Mm -hmm. stranger, right? They Mm -hmm. were playing a very different game that had nothing to do with truth or justice in this case, or putting a, an actual murderer behind bars or setting an innocent man free. And so that's where the, maybe cynicism isn't the right rubric here, but it's a lack of purchase on, on what is true that I think is mm-hmm. so awful here. And it's, you know, again, the analogy has to change a little bit to cover the phenomenon we're talking about now, but it's the dishonesty and bad faith. The notion that you need to break a lot of eggs to make this equity omelet. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's a lot of people who we know really aren't racist who are going to go down for this because, you know, it's just, this is, what, this is the way we have to play our political game. That's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that is, is so toxic. And so, anyway, I, I put that to you as an analogy, but I mean, that, that's the, I feel like that the spirit of that dissociation from honest conversation about facts. I mean, so I guess the, the, the frame here would be, there's something like a default position now in polite society, you know, at the New York Times, at, you know, in, in universities, in corporations, that every disparity, every significant disparity we're seeing between white and black America, whether it's violent crime or educational outcomes or employment, you know, how many Fortune 500 CEOs are of whatever skin color, the only way to explain those disparities is either white racism or institutional racism or systemic racism and mm-hmm. nothing else need be thought about and to think about anything else is to essentially volunteer to be cast as yet another racist who doesn't get it or you know, yet, mm-hmm. yet another you know troglodyte another archie bunker character who doesn't get it and th- there's a commensurate just attempt to deprogram our whole society along those lines and then you know we have the, this cast of characters like ibram x kendi and Robin D'Angelo spreading really the 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 doctrine of a new religion to mm-hmm. you know to people who are avid to pay for it. That's where I'm placing the cynicism in this yeah. movement. Yeah, I see what you mean, and you touch on you touch on very important points. One of them is something that you see that can be really confounding, which is that the central members of this elect group are willing to hold on to this ideology, even if it means losing elections. And that's one of many things that shows that this Mm. isn't about politics. This isn't about dismantling structures. This is mainly, it's a religious creed. We are like Romans watching the birth of Christianity. I genuinely think, hmm, within my lifetime, I have watched a really influential new religion in formation. Isn't it in its way interesting? And that's why, so for example, Mark Lilla's book, from a few years ago where he said that we need to tamp down identity politics with the purpose of getting this moron out of office 
that a certain kind of person basically circled the wagons and called him all kinds of names, including white supremacist, because he wasn't with the gospel. And it's the same way now, where what is most important is to talk about institutional racism and call the requisite people white supremacists, and to really, really annoy as many people as possible, regardless of whether it could mean that we have another four years of that narcissistic, insouciant simpleton as the person running this country. They really have a different sense of ranking than anybody would, except if it was a religion. And what you're talking about otherwise comes down to what really is the keystone problem of the whole way that we're being urged to see the race problem. And that is this idea that any problem that black people have, any kind of lag is due to racism. And it's partly, you, you talk about language, partly because of the way the use of the term racism has drifted. I don't think anybody was pulling the term along in order to throw up some kind of smokescreen. But racism starts as Archie Bunker and his personal bigotry. And then starting in the 1960s, it comes to refer not to active racism, but to results of racist behavior or even just racism, meaning that black people are behind in some way, such that you can say that the society is racist in that disparity by analogy with what racism originally was. And so it ends up being a very muddy term. Language tends to be muddy. But our new idea is indeed what you're mentioning that, say, Ibram Kendi or Robin DiAngelo say, which is that if black people lag behind, then it's racist. And with Kendi in particular, you can feel him holding back the indignation because he really feels that if, you know, if this isn't perfectly obvious, then I don't know what isn't. And the fact that I have to write a book saying this or two books saying this is an indication of the racism in question. Although, of course, now we're getting into this extremely protean sense of what racism is. But the problem with all of this is that the racism in cases like this, whatever we want the term to mean, gets to be so abstract so difficult to perceive that if it is racism, we're talking about such a Rube Goldberg game of mousetrap that there's no way that you could meaningly convince any dominant segment of any public of normal people that this made sense. And so, for example, you know, every summer, the number of teenage and 20-something black boys in distressed communities who are killing each other goes way up. And we haven't wanted to talk about it, but that's been including in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. We've been talking about George Floyd and lately various other men who have suffered really grisly fates at the hands of the cops. And in the meantime, black men have been killing each other with abandon in city after city across the United States, as happens every summer. Now, that is a tragedy. It has nothing to do with any kind of inherent depravity of the boys and men in question. But tell me how it's about racism. And if you're going to call it being about racism, if you're going to talk about not having fathers, if you're going to talk about the fact that the war on drugs was created partly with black criminals in mind 50 years ago, all of that is so indirect at this point that to just hold your hands out and say that the reason they're doing that is racism in the way that, for example, a Kendi would, it's just a vast oversimplification. Once mm -hmm. again, White people are being told that it's okay to pretend that when race issues come up, you let your IQ go down about 50 points because apparently black people's IQs are just stuck there. And so it, it won't work. I can understand a lot of people's good intentions here. To be honest, I don't think that Kendi or D'Angelo quite understand the matter beyond this. 
I think, to put it most politely, I think neither one of them quite understand that these issues would be worth a kind of sustained sort of engagement. They don't realize how complex these things are, partly because, although they wouldn't use the word, they're under the influence of a religion. How complicated is the Bible supposed to be beyond the world of theologians? But they're not thinking about it all that hard. But this is the proposition that will never work. Irish people, Jewish people, there are certain people listening to me now who are just you know, sitting at the edge of their seats waiting to say, but they were white. Hold on, folks. I've heard it before. Think about it. Have I not heard that before? Let me make the point. <laughs> there were Irish people, there were Jewish people, there were Italian people, and they used to practically be thought of as black. And well, they became white and they did it without there being any grand psychosocial revolution in society. Now, the idea has always been, well, it wasn't fair to expect black people to do that. And you know what? Maybe it wasn't, and that's why we had a civil rights revolution that gave us a real boost. And nobody can deny that we did get a real boost in the 60s and early 70s. There are all sorts of things in place that allow that. So we get that real boost, and there's a further psychosocial revolution in terms of how the country thinks about racism. But the idea is somehow that it's only going to go that far, because since we're brown, the prejudice against us is stronger. and therefore. This is what white people who are on the fence, and I think white people even who wouldn't call themselves on the fence, but deep down when they're having a drink, think about, is that black people are always waiting for the rules to be different for us. There's this idea that everybody else just had to claw their way, and that with black people, even though there was a civil rights revolution, still not enough. In our case, the rules have to be different. Now we have people with lots of letters after their names who can put that sort of thing in very elegant language. I don't think they're doing it on purpose, but you, the intersectionality is one way of doing it. People like Ibram Kendi's idea that we recast what we think of as intelligence and make it things like, quote unquote, desire to know. That's from one of his books. The whole notion that we recast what we think of as talent, the idea that we're going to reform the subject of STEM and change how we think of physics, <laughs> etc., that hmm. mathematics is racist, all of this stuff. What all of this translates into is for black people, the rules have to be different. And, you know, people are sick of it, and it's at the point where it's understandable that they will be. This whole new ideology is based on an idea that we're going to teach a significant number of people in the United States to have so creative, so transformative a view of how human affairs could go in this great nation that change could actually happen. And, you know, it's not going to. Part of the reason that I find all of this so disturbing is because they're poor black people who need real help. And people who consider themselves to be speaking for them are sitting around in rooms, putting their hands up in the air and saying that they understand their white privilege and teaching black people to think that their main role in society is to be the people who they should be grateful that white people consider themselves <laughs> privileged over. And now we have people who are trying to teach this to our children, sometimes with actual books. And in the meantime, Donald Trump gets reelected, and somehow all of this is progressivism? I seriously doubt it. But I say again, these people don't know what they're doing. They're not mean. They mm. think that they're giving us the good news. They're like Mormons. But we just have to realize that those smiles on their faces are deceptive, and we can't let them win. Well, it really is a complex picture, but there, there's, there are so many ways to notice that it, its complexity has to exceed at every point the simple diagnosis that it's white racism or you know systemic racism 
that is not yet fully rectified because white people simply don't care enough about it that explains all of these problems. Because, I mean, just two, two things that occurred to me as I was listening to you. When you think about the variable of race, and you, you notice that there are some communities like African immigrants, you know, Nigerian immigrants, who succeed disproportionately you know, per capita in our society, right? They're among the, the most successful people in our society. White racism should be cutting against them in the same way, right? So if, if, if really, mm-hmm. if, if, if it were that pernicious, if you, we just had racists in all these companies in Silicon Valley who just don't want black people in the office, it would show up there too. And this is a point that Coleman Hughes has made in various contexts. I was just thinking of him, yeah. yeah. And then there's also the fact that if you, if you take the problem of you know, violence that you referenced in a, a city like Chicago, that you, can, you really can set your watch by, and you can know the color of people's skin in advance. I mean, this is what's so mm-hmm. depressing, right? If you tell me that you know, 30 people were shot over the weekend in Chicago, you know, I could make money all day betting that they were non-white. Right? Sadly, yes. Yeah. So to obfuscate that fact is, as you know, virtually everyone left of center is inclined to do at this moment, is really kind of sanity straining and totally unproductive. But when you ask what a non-racist who would want nothing more than to solve that problem could do to solve it, Right. If we could just, you know, with all of our goodwill of non-racism or Mm anti-racism, come in there and fix the problem, what would that solution look like? It's not whatever the solution is. It's not a matter of just making sure that everyone within a thousand miles of Chicago is no longer racist. (laughs) Right. I mean, there, 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 we have a cultural problem there that is being expressed that, that needs some remedy, and and people need to be given somehow a totally different aspiration that has something to do with getting educated and, mm-hmm. and something to do with integrating in, in polite society. It's just hard to see how even someone like Kendi can think that that's the full story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing, and I'm glad you brought up Nigerians, because you know, there's a little bit more to the story that I was mentioning, which was that it used to be said that, well, white people are only going to let black people get so far. Then after about 1990, we started having a high level of African immigrants to this country, not to mention Caribbean ones who'd been coming before. And it's become painfully clear that these are people who are often subject to exactly the same kinds of racism. It's not that racism doesn't exist, but they thrive. They make the best of the least. Now, People who speak for black people, black ones and fellow travelers, have a standing response to that, which is that those people have what's called immigrant pluck, and it's not fair to expect native-born black people to have it. And, you know, one answer to that question is, why? You know, what group in the history of the human species has ever had a motto of, yes, we can't? That's what that is. The idea is that you're supposed to be proud of saying, no, we can't be expected to have that kind of pluck. What that is, is self-hating. And it's interesting because there's a grand old tradition of calling someone like me self-hating. Apparently, I lack confidence. Apparently, I wish I were white. Well, you know what? I'm afraid not. And the truth is that from behind my eyes, I see people who are willing to settle for this weak vision of what black people are supposed to be as the ones who don't like themselves inside, which is part of why I almost never get really angry at them. I think to myself, If you don't like yourself, then of course you're going to settle for this, and of course you're going to get mad 
if somebody like me who does comes along and says that you need to buck up. I understand that anger. But yeah, the other problem is that we're not allowed to talk about that all human groups have negative cultural traits and that being a descendant of African slaves at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st doesn't somehow make that untrue. And so instead of talking about the cultural problem, there's this assumption that you're saying that there's something biologically depraved about black people, and you must have your wrist smacked about that. But yes, the question becomes, what racism would you withdraw to solve a problem? And so, for example, a lot of why black guys are killing each other in cities is based on things that trace back, often maybe two or three steps, but trace back to the war on drugs. So one solution might be to fight tooth and nail against that ridiculous war on drugs because its effect would be, when you withdrew that, that things in the inner city would be quite different because there would be no drug turf to fight over. There would be Mm. no tempting black market if you went to a lousy school and had a lousy life to use to keep the wolf from the door. If there were no way of making half a living selling drugs. And notice, folks, I said half a living. I know the factoid that none of them get rich except the occasional person, but still, it keeps the wolf from the door. If that weren't possible, then the same men would go find legal work and claw their way up from the bottom. And it's not fair that they have to, but that would be better than getting killed or going to prison for a very long time and leaving children to recapitulate their lives because their dads weren't there. Let's face it, it would be better. But you don't talk about that too much. Now, many of the people will say, well, yes, we need to talk about that too. But why is it that their favorite topic is just to get rid of quote-unquote racism with the idea that, you know, protesters about what happened to George Floyd actually putting their bodies on the ground, white protesters, and bowing down to black people standing up there above them, is somehow more important or is even a necessary preliminary? All of this energy that people are putting into, for example, putting out statements that their organization is going to fight white supremacy. And the organization is like a school of nursing. The organization is a school of music theory. It's a math department. All of these Mm -hmm. profoundly racist places. Why is any of that necessary when really all that energy could go into getting rid of a war on drugs that would solve probably about 65% of the problems that most ail us? You don't talk about it because we're talking about a religion. It's not because the people are dumb. It's not because they're crazy. It's not because they're mean. And not to, you know, push this too hard, I don't think it's that they're cynics. It's that they are pious. They have taken on a way of thinking that means that you sequester a part of your brain for thoughts and responses that are not based on logic. And we can't say that that's crazy because most of the world's human beings are religious. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I... Totally follow you there. That is, I mean, I, I tend to think of it as a cult, but you know, the, the difference between a cult and a religion Subtle. is just numbers of subscribers. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, as it grows, it certainly could have the shape of a new religion. Let's talk about how to move forward. I mean, just what would a, a sane path through the wilderness look like hmm. and, and how we should think about identity and just what the goal is. I mean, in, in my mind, the goal is something like a colorblind society. I mean, so, so that to truly overcome racism would not be to arrive in some future where more and more of us are passionate anti-racists. It would be to arrive in a future where, where we could never dream, really, that skin color 
could have moral or political significance, right? I mean, just, just mm -hmm. as is the case with hair color today. I mean, no one is trying to figure out how many you know, blondes or brunettes or redheads are in various <laughs> positions in society. Mm -hmm. And for good reason, nobody cares. And if we perversely started caring about that, right, and started advertising our grievances with respect to hair color, would have taken a significant step away from basic human sanity. And so you know, we have to re recover sanity somehow with this variable of race. I mean, just to give a little context here, I mean, anyone who's been listening to my podcast for a while knows that, and who knows anything about my views about you know, the nature of the mind and the nature of the self, knows that, that I don't think a person should even, at the end of the day, identify with the face that he or she sees in the mirror each day. Like that is not the proper locus of one's self-concept. But, you know, how much less should one identify with a group of people, you know, most of whom will be strangers forever, who just happen to superficially resemble the face you see in the mirror each day. I mean, mm -hmm. it, just, it just seems completely nuts to think of oneself in those terms in any kind of ongoing way. And the idea that I would spend any part of today thinking about my whiteness or feeling solidarity with other white people because we share some skin tone, in the midst of my life, that would be synonymous with me suffering some kind of brain damage. It would be a kind of illness of the mind. And yet what is being advertised to us from all quarters is that group identity, and again, this, you know, within the wokeness, this extends beyond race, this is, covers sexuality and gender and other variables, but there's a primacy of group identity that is, apparently there's no vision any longer of getting beyond, right? It's mm -hmm. just, but as much as I, I want to get beyond it, it's, that's not to say that I believe I'm colorblind now, right? Because that, that is actually, I mean, my, I, it strikes me as impossible as long as one is aware of statistics. I mean, so for instance, what I just said about being able to predict who is committing you know, all of these crimes in Chicago, right? The fact that I know these background facts about the, you know, just the, the identities of, of people, you know, who are committing robberies and other violent crimes gives me a certain expectation. I mean, I, I'm very surprised to hear it when it turns out to be a, a Hasidic Jew. And I'm not at all surprised when I hear it's yet another black man who's guilty of, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the crime is. And so it's just that, that, that sort of background expectation which violates any principle of, of colorblindness now. And I guess the, the, the flip side of it, for me, I mean, recently I remember I was watching one of these SpaceX launches, and when they went to the, the kind of the press conference side of things, one of the people on the panel was a black woman who was one of the rocket scientists. You know, mm -hmm. She was an enge engineer of some kind. So you know, the reality of that situation for me is you know, I'm watching that, and it, it made me inordinately happy to mm -hmm. see a black woman rocket scientist. Mm -hmm. And so and, and the only way to understand that, you know, psychological change in me is two things are going on. One is I have some, you know, though I never thought about it up until that moment, I had some background, you know, statistical belief that it was fairly uncommon for a, a black person, much less a black woman, to be a, a rocket scientist. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, there's a, a deeply positive, albeit not at all colorblind emotion, which is I'm overjoyed to see a black woman rocket scientist. I mean, like that, I want there to be more black women in those roles. 
And, you know, conversely, I want there to be fewer black men in the role of yet another booked suspect for a robbery or a homicide in a major mm-hmm. American city. So just the mere awareness of, of the statistics kind of overrides any aspiration for being truly colorblind at moments like these. But that failure of colorblindness cannot be the same thing as racism, right? Because what I want is all of these good outcomes and you know, more good outcomes and fewer bad outcomes for black people in either case. And mm-hmm. beyond all of that, I, what I want more than anything is to get to a society where I wouldn't even be tempted to notice the color of a person's skin, whether they're a rocket scientist or a criminal, right? Because it just, it, it would make no sense to notice it because I didn't notice their hair color either, right? It's mm-hmm. just, it's like, and so the question is, how do we get there? So, but I, it, it does strike me that there's this, this transitional period where colorblindness isn't quite the prescription. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I guess the question of, you know, affirmative action, you know, lands right in here. It's like, well, mm-hmm. what is the right policy to be implementing given that, you know, I think the goal really is to get beyond any kind of politics of identity in mm-hmm. the end. Yeah, that's what we were supposed to want. And that's become unfashionable. And there are reasons for it. It's interesting. If you could um, go into a <laughs> graduate seminar in a humanities department on just about any subject, and you could, you know, hook up wires <laughs> to every student after they had, you know, signed a certain protocol, making sure that everything was okay, knowing that nothing unpleasant was going to happen to them, put some wires on everybody, EKG or something like that, and then just get up in front of the class and say identity. And you could watch people's blood pressure go up a little bit, and you could probably measure, if you did a quick blood test, endorphins going through their veins. There's this notion that what it really has to be about is identity. And what I mean by that is that these days we're taught that the enlightened black person centers their sense of self on their relationship to what white people are doing or not doing. And so what exactly is your identity? And your identity has to be caught up in this idea of not being white and also being in eternal complaint about what white people are doing or not doing. That is considered the advanced thing. That is higher reasoning. That is the equivalent in this religion to having faith in in Jesus. And so if that's what you're doing, then the idea that we're going to get past race is inconvenient. Because for that kind of person, and unfortunately that kind of person is common, for that kind of person, if you're not thinking of yourself as colored, so to speak, you don't have anywhere to grab onto. To even think of the idea of a colorblind America is to imagine an America in which you cannot imagine just where you would fit in. What we're dealing with is ultimately what happens to Homo sapiens when groups get larger than about 150 people where nobody has to wonder what they are. With white elect, in this case, a lot of it is that you want to have a sense of purpose. And if it can't be that you're just somebody's brother and somebody's son, and you marry somebody and all of you go out and you hunt whales or something like that, you don't, you don't have any existential crisis. Once you're in a large modern society, you want to have a sense of what you are good for. What's your purpose? It can be hard to find that. It is not natural to wish to be an individual. And yet that is what modernity forces upon us. So one thing that you can be is this crusader where you're battling racism. But that means, especially with the way it's being put these days, 
that you must think of yourself as this evil white person who's always going to be racist no matter how many good things you do for black people and you feel good about being able to say that about yourself. If you couldn't say it, then who exactly are you? And it's wrong to suppose that any of these people on either side, the white side or the black side, and of course that's a vast oversimplification, but it's not that anybody's trying to make money, it's not that anybody's trying to have power. If anything, it's part of the self-definition of the elect to think of themselves as not having power. It's just, it's what makes you feel like a person. And so, what we have is a situation where here is the black female rocket scientist, and I'm sure that the, the typical elect person applauds that in a kind of perfunctory way, but what they want is for it to be made easier for black people to become rocket scientists by getting rid of all of the really tough math. And I'm not exaggerating. You can actually hear people saying these sorts of things as I have walking next to them. You can read people saying things like this. There are Mm. tenured and hotshot black professors who stand up in front of august bodies of people saying that it's racist to expect black scholars to be mathematically competent. And I'm not exaggerating. Mm. And so the idea is that if we're going to have a colorblind society, it's going to have to be one where how we do rocket science is changed or that you can become a rocket scientist without learning a lot of the things that until now it's been thought of as absolutely necessary and even defining for a rocket scientist to know. And that's really dangerous stuff. Again, partly because it's horrifically condescending. If the idea were that you could be a rocket scientist by not doing the things that rocket scientists are supposed to do, everybody would know the ones that had not done the things that you're supposed to do, and everybody would be reinforced in thinking there was something wrong with black people which the elect wouldn't mind. It's not that they're going for it, but they wouldn't mind because that would give them further fuel for talking about how indelibly racist society is. But yes, ultimately, we want to get past these distinctions. And yet my friend Thomas Chatterton Williams, whenever he tries to talk about how we need to start moving back towards the colorblindness that we see people in black and white newsreels singing of, well, he gets roasted as some kind of Uncle Tom or he's a white supremacist. And of course, Sam, we have to talk about the fact that for a lot of people, the instant answer here is the cops. So for many people, Mm. the idea is that, for example, my identity must be focused on how I am not white because of what happened to George Floyd. Now, the problem there is that with OJ, I had a whole kind of bildungsroman about that. I was disgusted watching those black students on TV cheering when it was painfully obvious what O.J. Simpson had done. It took me a while to fully get that, yes, everybody knew what he did. It was painfully obvious, and I couldn't stand listening to people pretend not to know at the time because I like to have all the ducks in a row. But it was seen as a vigilante justice against a genuine terrorism that the L.A. cops had exerted against particularly black people in Los Angeles And there was a similar feeling across the United States for reasons which statistically made sense then. And even if they didn't make sense exactly in 1997, people's sense of how the world works for them is not going to change instantly because of gradual sea changes over time. So nowadays, I see that the O.J. Simpson performance art had a certain understandability. It disappointed me a lot. In my first book about race, Losing the Race, I'm still white hot about people's willful refusal to understand the real facts on that case. Now I kind of get it, but goodness, it's been a while. OJ was, was that 1994 
So mm-hmm. here we are 26 years later. There are people who weren't born then who have two or three kids and real jobs. It was a very long time ago. And at this point, we're in one of the most challenging situations that I have ever known in terms of how we move forward, which is that if you look at the statistics, it is quite clear that the idea that cops, even subconsciously, kill black people out of racist animus or even subtle racist bias is simply insupportable. It just, it doesn't work. And I was somebody who thought that that was true until about four years ago, and I was in a conversation with my sparring partner, Brown University economist and black man, Glenn Lowry, where he and I were arguing about this. And I said, Glenn, you'd have to prove to me that this sort of thing happens to white people. And not only does it happen to white people, but there are further arguments that make it clear that even if black men are killed disproportionately to their numbers, then unfortunate facts about who commits the most crimes, including homicides, not to mention just factoring poverty and how that affects interactions with cops, whether you're white, Latino, or black, makes it clear that the simple idea that's so intuitive that George Floyd died because of the color of his skin simply doesn't go through. And yet, Sam, what does worry me is that we are at a point where because of the religion and its imperatives, Hmm. you can't get that across to a critical mass of people. I have watched people much smarter than me presented with the very simple facts who simply can't hear them. And these are people who are usually rather even-tempered people who get upset. This really presses a button. And so unfortunately, a lot of the people who identify as X, Y, or Z and seem to be going directly against what Martin Luther King was calling for would say that they're doing it because the cops killed George Floyd because he was black and that kind of thing keeps happening. And as long as that's what they know, and as long as they won't listen to what the truth is about black men and the cops, which is that the cops are a serious problem in this country, but that when it comes to who they kill, the data simply doesn't support that black men are being killed because cops are racist against them. We can't really get anywhere. That's the hardest Mm. thing about this, the cops. Interesting. Yeah. So as most people listening will will recall, I I did a podcast in the immediate aftermath of the, the George Floyd killing, I believe it was titled, Can We Pull Back from the Brink, which was a, a solo podcast. As I said at the time, I, I consciously resisted the, the impulse to bring on someone like yourself to sort of to midwife that conversation, because I just felt like the idea that I couldn't say what what I thought needed to be said on my own as a white guy was was pernicious and and worth not capitulating to. So I I did it solo and got a lot of support and also a lot of criticism. Um, and people are you know can't shake the feeling that a a white person shouldn't be saying these things. Very much along the lines of what you just said. I know you read the transcript of that podcast. I'm wondering is is there anything you think I got wrong? Or is there any place, is there, is, there, is there any daylight between us on this issue? You know, Sam, the honest truth is what you said on that podcast was all spun gold, as far as I'm concerned. In terms hmm. of bravery, I was struck by your mentioning something that even I have hesitated to ever say anything about because of the nature of the situation, which is that really, you know, if the cops, you know, grab you and they want you to do something, you need to let them do it. The idea that 
you're being some kind of hero to resist, that you're supposed to think about the cosmic sociopolitics and kind of flip the bird at the cops or do worse. And that that ends up creating a lot of these problems. Frankly, as people say, there is some of that. And I do think that ideally we would say one way that some of these things wouldn't happen is don't resist the police. You know, basically just do what they say. And as you said, put in your objections later after the heat of the moment has passed. If you feel that you've been stopped unfairly, if you feel that something has gone wrong, you can lodge the complaint. These days, there are more channels for getting your complaint out than there used to be. Social media means that you can basically have your say and possibly have it picked up much more easily than you could have in, say, 1974. But not then. None of the walking away, none of the yelling and screaming, none of the, 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 the spitting, etc. And I feel like, you know, I'm black and I can't say that because I feel like a lot of people feel that these people are having their say in a society that is dedicatedly set against the well-being of black people and black men in particular. And I just feel like many people simply couldn't hear that. There's a part of them that feels like this resistance of arrest in cases like this is a kind of new form of civil rights. Mm. And I sense that I could cut through that even less likely than I could make people understand that a George Floyd who was white, such as Tony Timpa, four years before him, very similar situation, could have been killed under the same indefensible conditions. So it's a tough one. But no, what you said, I stand behind you. You were correct. And I thought to myself, it's kind of sad that you're not allowed to make this kind of logical sense when talking about these issues because so much of it has been encrusted in what's thought of as higher reasoning, but is really a kind of performance art that serves more to make people feel secure in themselves within the structure of elect religion than to prevent bad things from happening to people. And so, for mm -hmm. example, George Floyd, take away the war on drugs and the cops would have much less reason to patrol disadvantaged black communities. And many negative interactions, that's not what happened to be happening with George Floyd, but many negative ne interactions wouldn't happen simply by virtue of that. There's an educational crisis with kids that disproportionately affects disadvantaged black kids, which has to do with how reading is taught. And to be very quick about it, reading should be taught by teaching kids how to sound out words. You'd think that was the most natural thing in the world. But there are other reading philosophies where you teach kids to recognize words as whole pieces because English spelling is weird. Mm -hmm. And you let them do that instead of, frankly, learning how to read. You and I probably learned by reading chunks. And that's because we are middle class, readaholic kinds of people. But for kids who come from not book lined homes, from kids who come from places where most communication is oral rather than on the page, you need to be taught the good old-fashioned way. It's surprising how that does not happen for a great many black kids who really need it. And once you're just an okay reader, you're never going to be all that great in school, and you can't make the most of, say, a moderate, although not great school, because you weren't taught how to read right. I have seen this happen. And finally, there needs to be free, easy access to long-term acting contraceptives that are reversible, but for five years make it so that 
You can do family planning without having to work too hard. Way too many births of children are accidental. And if a lower income mom does not want to have kids until she's gotten on her feet, a way to avoid the kinds of accidents that happen to almost anybody in the course of life is to have these contraceptives be available to as many women as possible. And this would, of course, cover black as well as Latino and white women. Women of that demographic in all colors have been shown in studies to like these. No talk about eugenics is appropriate here. It's just about being able to plan your family without thinking too hard and without so many births being accidents, especially if you're somebody who would prefer not to interrupt the growth of a child once it's started. Yes, I'm talking about abortion. If you don't want to have an abortion, great, but the larks, as they're called, make it so that you don't end up having to deal with those choices. If you did those three things, just those three, it would solve so many problems Mm. for black people who need help. And all three of those things would go a good 80% of the way towards solving the problems we're talking about, regardless of how Derek Chauvin, or however you pronounce his name, feels about black people in his heart of hearts. However privileged white people are or aren't, it would really put black America back on its feet. But we're not supposed to think about anything so proactive because those aren't religious thoughts. We're supposed to Mm. think about things that are more emotional, things that are more interpersonal, things that make you feel like you've got the Lord in you. And that's where you get books like books like White Fragility. That's where you get books like How to Be an Anti-Racist. And oh, my goodness gracious, that's where you get How to Raise an Anti-Racist Baby, which means Mm. that my children, five and eight, are going to have teachers. This is what scares me to my socks. My kids are going to run into this, and I'm trying to think of what I'm going to do about it. They're going to be these teachers with shining eyes, not cynics, shining eyes, teaching my biracial daughters that they need to primarily think of themselves as black girls who are going to suffer racism at the hands of their white classmates. And I say, no, 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 no. But I'm afraid that we're getting to the point where there's no school that I could put them in where I could keep them from that. And I don't have time to homeschool. That's what's worrying me. But we need a real race sociopolitics that's about getting out on the ground and doing real things. And instead, we are engaging in a kind of charismatic navel gazing. And I think that we really need to get past it. I'm in precisely that same position with respect to the education of my daughters. And it's, it's amazing to witness. I think you just have to, at the appropriate moment, have the conversation with them to inoculate them against yep. the brainwashing that's coming or that has already started. But it's a fascinating thing to try to navigate. I want to linger on the, this this issue of the police videos because mm. they have such an outsized effect on on everything that's happening here. I mean, there's you know comparatively very few of them uh, that have been you know widely seen. We, we really are talking about something like a dozen or two dozen videos that have defined this moment culturally. Mm-hmm. Now, no, no doubt there are thousands upon thousands of them available. I've watched, uh, you know, many more than dozens. The thing that I just want to reiterate about these videos is that they're very hard to understand, much less understand dispassionately, right? I mean, these are functioning, as you say, they have a, a religious significance. I mean, these are, you know, held up as icons in, you know, Orthodox Christianity. I mean, it's like, this is the 
the moral core of the religion, the injustice that is patently obvious here within the frame of, of this phone. And yet they're functioning, to my eye, much more like a kind of pornography of grievance and distrust of institutions. Mm-hmm. And again, they're just reliably misunderstood by even very well-intentioned people who are, who are not implicated at all in the video. You know, it's just, you know, my, my mother can't understand these videos. She, she reflexively sees everything that Ibram Kendi would want her to see mm-hmm. in, you know, naively coming to one of these videos. So, I mean, the, the thing to point out is that for every video you've seen, whether it's the George Floyd video or, you know, Eric Garner or, or any of these other ones, I mean, one, there are differences among them that are incredibly important, right? I mean, just mm-hmm. for anyone who understands, you know, violence and what cops can do and should do to protect themselves and the public once things start running off the rails. All of these videos are highly non-analogous with one another, and yet that is virtually mm. never acknowledged. And, you know, the cases where we don't have video, but where we know something about what happened, like the Michael Brown case, mm-hmm. just totally unlike these other cases. Each is the dissimilarities need to be noticed. But then there are, for every video you want to fasten on as emblematic of the problem of racism and police violence, you just have to know that there are other videos where all the relevant variables are reversed, where the skin color of all participants, you know, cops and victims mm-hmm. are reversed, right? And you just swap that all out, you know, and you can find that video. And one thing that largely goes unacknowledged is there are videos where the thing that the cops are most worried about, suddenly getting shot in the face by the person who, until a moment before, showed no sign of being armed, you know, Mm -hmm. those videos are there to be seen too, right? So the thing that explains how spun up the cops often are in these circumstances where they're shouting commands and going increasingly berserk Mm -hmm. in the presence of a non-compliant person, one, it so often speaks to their lack of training. You know, they, they simply don't have all the tools they need right. to nonviolently control somebody. We're speaking now on a day, the day after a video that's you know, especially disturbing has circulated, which makes many of these points for me. And there's, there's a video out of uh, Tulsa, I believe, of a white person being pulled over where the cops, two cops, are attempting to make an arrest. And it's not clear from at least the, the version I saw, which now has several million views. Uh, I saw it on Twitter. It's not clear how this all started. You know, I mean, I'm sure this person was driving like a maniac, or you, know, mm-hmm. you don't know why the cops are so spun up. But you know, once they're engaging him in the car, they are you know getting ready to tase him, and they do, and it doesn't work. And again, tasers often don't work. Then they begin pepper spraying him. The guy just refuses to get arrested. He does not want to come out of the car. They're trying to pull him out of the car. Mm-hmm. They don't have the skills to physically do this well where they can keep themselves safe and actually immobilize him. So they're, they're yanking on him every which way and shooting him with, you know, with pepper spray. And the guy's complaining about the injustice of this all. And, you know, he's, he's innocent and, you know, this is a violation of his rights. And why are you doing this? And, you know, had he been black, you know, up until the final frames of this video, this would be yet another case of, you know, monstrous misbehavior on the part of cops. I would have heard of you it know, by now, right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, in the sovereign citizen lunatic cult in white society, I'm sure it also is emblematic of, you know, the overreach of state violence. But 
what happens at the end of this video is this guy is wearing a t-shirt and shorts. I don't, I don't think it's even clear where he pulls the gun from. I think it probably was on in his waistband. You know, he might have retrieved it from his car as he was being pulled out. But up until the last moment where you think, okay, well, I'm not sure why they're tasing him and spraying him with pepper spray, but, you know, the cops are really freaked out. And this guy, they're just not successfully arresting this guy. He's got his cell phone in one hand. And the next thing you know, both cops are shot. I think one has died. I'm not sure about the state of the other. And every cop knows on an hourly basis that this is a possibility every single time they have an encounter with a member of the public. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely obvious from the cop's eye view of the world that it is very hard to tell who the bad guys are. And we live in a society awash with guns. And so you, you owe it to yourself. If you're someone who has been successfully propagandized by the Black Lives Matter take on all the, the famous videos, you need to see a few videos like this one from Tulsa to know what cops are dealing with. Mm -hmm. This is a traffic stop. And, you know, you, you get to watch two cops, you know, at least one cop be executed because of it. And, you know, th that's the complete conversation about this. And so, yeah, I mean, the punchline is whatever you're being arrested for, it doesn't matter that you know you're innocent. You have to follow directions so as to minimize the possibility that the cop is going to feel that something you're doing with your hands is presenting such an intolerable risk to his safety or her safety that they have to, you know, draw their gun and point it at your head. And, and now you're risking, you know, being killed for no good reason. Yeah. So often it's, it's about somebody who reaches. And it's yeah. clear that the cops are really, really afraid of somebody reaching for a gun and killing them. And I would have to assume that they're not afraid of that for no reason. And yet there seems to be a notion out there that that's something that the cops are only afraid of when it's a black person. And it leads me to something that I've come to realize over the years about these cop cases. And I should say, and I think it's very important for me to say this, I was not thinking this way until about four years ago. I had the, hmm. the BLM the thought about this. Many people who don't like me don't know that in my books I have written about this. I have a whole essay about the police and profiling. I knew this was the one thing that, that justified the way people like this think, as opposed to, frankly, everything else about being black. But the thing about this is that whenever you see a video such as, you know, the ones that we've seen now from Minneapolis and Kenosha, you know, there seems to be a new one you know, about every week these days, is first of all, you have to think, is there a white video like this that the media is not showing us? And it's not that the media are, you know, giggling and rubbing their hands together and trying to pull the wool over our eyes or something like that. But was there a white version? Because the truth is that almost always there was. We, uh, we now have George Floyd and that video seared in our minds. There's a Tony Timpa video. It's the same thing. Nobody wants to yeah. talk about that. So first of all, is there a white version? And second, something I've learned. I remember after, no, I'm not the only one, but it's something that I learned late. After George Floyd, Glenn Lowry and I held off for a little bit. And the reason we held off for a little, well, this is the usual pattern with us, is that he wants to just jump in. And I always, because I want to sit in a chair and read a book, I want to wait for a couple of weeks. With George Floyd, not that he doesn't read books just as much as I do, but with George Floyd, I said, you know what, Glenn, let's just wait. Because I said, it's never what it looks like at first. Let's at least see what 
that other shoe that hasn't fallen yet is because it's never what people say it is. And that goes back to cases where I had no reason to doubt. What we were told about Amadou Diallo, it was different. Or, yes, I'm about to go here, folks. Trayvon Martin, it was different. Michael Brown, it was extremely different. There are some cases, like with Walter Scott, where he's running away. Obviously, yeah. you know, that one is hopeless. And that cop, I think Michael Slager, he went to jail. Like, he's in jail yeah. for 20 years. There's some of them where it's just indefensible. But usually, there's more than we're being told. And in general, the idea that what happened to Walter Scott was because he was black, it seems so intuitive, partly because you only see that tape. There was a white Walter Scott. I'm not sitting here with my data, but there's a very similar story around the same time of a white guy shot in the back running away from something that was rather similar to that. We just weren't told. And even when you do the numbers, even when you see that black men are disproportionately shot to their numbers in society. Still, when you factor in poverty and when you factor in who commits the most crimes, and if you want to trace that to racism in the past or even the present, okay, but that doesn't erase the fact. The idea is that George Floyd didn't die because he was black. It just doesn't work. And yet we're in a society where we've hit a real, we've hit a real, Sam, help me with the analogy. <laughs> we've hit a thing that won't move. And that is because there is no way under elect ideology that a critical mass of people can allow that cops don't kill black people out of racism. They can't allow it because it would threaten a major plank of their religious catechism. And so we have to work around that. That's part of why I say that you cannot reason with a certain kind of person. And by the elect, I mean there's a continuum. Some people are very elect. Some people are slightly elect. Too many people are on the fence and thinking of becoming elect. Those are the ones I'm writing the book for. Some people are not elect at all. But when somebody really has drunk that Kool-Aid, you can't, you can't reason with them. And one of the things that you simply can't expect to reason with them about is race and the cops, because that's one of the major founts of the whole way of thinking. So you and I can have all the conversation we want, but I'm afraid that if we're going to get past race in any real way, there are certain people who are going to think that way about the cops forever, and unfortunately, it's a lot. But I hope that we can get to enough people who are open to seeing that things aren't as bad as you'd think. Isn't that the weirdest thing? Things aren't mm. as bad as you'd think, and many people listen to someone saying that and think of it as bad news. They resist it. They think that the person who's bearing that good news is doing so because they're immoral in some way. This is really twisted stuff, except not. We're talking about the birth of a new, call it a cult, call it a religion. But you can't reason. And so our strategy has to be to politely work around a certain way of thinking. But that means that we can't let it completely take over all of our institutions of higher thought. Yeah, there's a, an irony here, which you just pointed to in progressivism, which is an unwillingness to admit progress. Exactly. Right? This is something that Steve Pinker has run up against a lot in pointing to all the data surrounding or attesting to progress in, in our quality of life on, on 100 fronts in uh, the developed world. And there's obviously been progress on race in America in the last 50 years. I think is understandably people are worried that Trump and the, the infatuation of the far right with him uh, represents a kind of you know, loss of progress or at least a hiccup. Mm -hmm. In the arc of history there, it's, it's definitely not auspicious to see 
people showing up in Charlottesville with tiki torches, chanting the Jews will not replace us, and mm-hmm. you know, believing all the things that are attached to, to that slogan about um, black people and, and um, anyone who's not white. So it's easy to see the, the basis for alarm in, you know, under Trump, but mm-hmm. clearly in the aftermath of a Obama, which is to say a two-term black president, it's very hard to say that there's a, a ceiling on the political aspirations of black people in America now. And, and that's true you know, for success you see in, in so many walks of life. I find myself conflicted over affirmative action as a remedy for the remaining inequality, which is obvious. I mean, there's, there's the issue of class in society, which is you know, related to the issue of race, but it's a different problem. And, you know, obviously, I think we need to worry about wealth inequality and and need to talk about remedies for it. But that cuts across color lines. There are many, many millions of white people in America at this moment who, you know, looking around them at their economic circumstances, would be amazed to be asked to consider the evidence of their white privilege. (laughs) You know, they're not doing well at all. uh, And we know this. And that's really one of the problems with, you know, hammering away on this notion of white privilege in the run-up to this coming presidential election, because so many white people don't feel it, would have no reason to feel it, and it's just obviously the case that they've fallen through the cracks in our system. But nevertheless, there still is a real problem of economic inequality and inequality of other types across racial lines. But the question is what to do about that. and. I've heard you speak about affirmative action in a very um, compelling way. I mean, in fact, you, even discussing your your sense that you have benefited from it in your life academically or in your career, and just the you know both sides of that. You know, Glenn Lowry has spoken about this, I believe, in the podcast we did, but he's certainly spoken about it with you on mm-hmm. on the podcast you, you do together on the Glenn Show. Just that it's this dual phenomenon, which it does burden black people with the sense that, you know, everyone, virtually everyone, runs into something like imposter syndrome in their lives at various points. But there's kind of a double burden of it here or an amplification of it, which is, you know, given that affirmative action is still practiced in various places, to be the beneficiary of it or to even be thought to be the beneficiary of it, whether or not you were, is a kind of social burden. And to be placed, on Glenn's account, to be placed in a program for which you're actually not qualified, I mean, to have the standards for admission reduced in the case of any one person who's now going to struggle at the bottom of their class when they, they need not have had they gone to another institution. I mean, the example that he uses is, you know, to be admitted to the engineering program at MIT as an affirmative action admission and to be consigned, you know, to be virtually guaranteed to be at the bottom of the class because you're you're now having to function among the the top 001% of engineering talent in the country and uh, the standards have been reduced, you know, for your admittance. I mean, you're you're just not doing that person any favors, at least this Mm -hmm. is now on Glenn's account. I'm torn about this because at minimum, it seems like it should be a kind of tiebreaker, right? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, I don't want the the standards reduced, you know, especially in, I mean, in the, the the Onion articles, you know, write themselves when you're talking about 
the standards for something like rocket science. I mean, it's like you, if you're if you're going to recruit people who can't do the science part of of rocketry, well, then you're going to have you know, lots of rockets exploding on <laughs> on launch, right? You know, there there are places where you can get away with it, and there's places where you can't. But I'm just wondering how I should think about the complexities of this as a remedy, because it feels to me like to be against affirmative action isn't a comfortable position, and to be for it generically isn't a comfortable position. I mean, we can bring in the Asians who are rightly, I think, alarmed that institutions like Harvard have a racist or quasi-racist policy of exclusion for them now, because mm-hmm. there's just you know too many of them you know are uh, do so much uh, effective homework and test prep that if you did it as a pure meritocracy and you were you were race blind at admissions at Harvard, I think that the incoming class would be something like 57% Asian, mm-hmm. you know, which strikes them as frankly crazy. So yeah, how to think about all that? Yeah, affirmative action is a tough one. It's something where it generally is discussed in a liturgical way where you have to really work to peel away the layers and talk about it with any kind of truth. And that means that if you talk about it in a sort of a cocktail sipping way with all of the usual suspects, we're supposed to pretend that it's just a matter of the thumb on the scale. So people talk about wanting to assemble a diverse class. And the idea is that once everybody is shown to have had the same qualifications, then you start doing percentages. And you know, who would have any problem with that? But the real issue with affirmative action, the way it's actually practiced on the ground, is that standards are lowered, with the idea being that if there aren't enough brown candidates who measure up by the conventional standard, then you lower the standards somewhat so that there'll be what's called a representative number of people there. And, you know, the way that was done in affirmative action stage one, say late 1960s, where you got somebody from what was called the ghetto and put them at MIT. That didn't work. The person was just too transparently underqualified. And so then for the next about 20 years, it was very fashionable to choose more realistic candidates as ones where you lower standards somewhat significantly, but only somewhat, and then just watch to see whether they sink or swim. And the idea was that you quietly turned people's eyes away from the sinking and called a special attention to the swimming. And if there wasn't much swimming, then you just didn't talk about it at all, except to defend the policy as a way of staving off racism in society. And the way I generally have felt about affirmative action is that to institute it in the 1960s, in the 1970s, meant that, yeah, as you, as you said, sometimes you have to, well, always, if you're going to make an omelet, you have to break some eggs. So the idea was to have an imperfect policy in order to give at least a representative number of talented black people the opportunity to show what they were made of, maybe not at the very tippy top of a class, for example, if we're talking about university admissions, but doing decently and having the cultural experience of being on the campus, being able to make the connections to allow for success. That policy is very humane in itself, but the problem is that always you have two problems. You're going to have white people resenting that they didn't get in because space was made for black people. And you can argue about the extent of that, but nevertheless, there are going to be black people who see specifically that they had the same qualifications as a black or a Latino person, and they weren't admitted, and it's clearly because of affirmative action. There's no way to tamp down that resentment. It's always going to be there. So you institute the policy thinking of that as collateral damage. 
But then also there's the issue that black people under that regime have to always know that they were admitted according to different standards. And that does weigh upon you, or at least it should. And so there are always going to be those problems. I say, think of it as chemotherapy. Affirmative action is something that should have been applied for exactly one generation, maybe 20 years. Mm. After that, there needed to be other strategies because of those two things that are such a problem. And so today, we end up in a situation where the courts are gradually chipping away at that grand old 1985 kind of affirmative action. And that's supposed to be racism on the march. But in the meantime, you see things that make no sense except as something people put up with under the auspices of a religion. And so, constantly, black students are quoted saying, people think I got in because of affirmative action. Well, frankly, if the policy is so lustily espoused all the time, then you know you probably did get in through affirmative action, and you're supposed to be talking about how wonderful it is. If black students don't want people to think they got in through affirmative action and therefore get left aside as lab partners, etc., then maybe there shouldn't be any, but oh, no, you're not supposed to think about that. It's not about logic. It's about faith. You're supposed to think about racism. So. It's racism not to have affirmative action. It's racism if you tell somebody that they got in because of affirmative action. That makes Hmm. no sense, but we're talking about religion rather than logic. Or another one is diversity. So even as early as 1978, it became clear that affirmative action in universities wasn't exactly helping the poorest of black kids because they simply weren't prepared in any sense. So then comes the idea, starting with Justice Powell, that it's supposed to be about creating a diverse class. But then, on the other hand, when you talk about racism on campus, a prime claim is black students saying they don't like being called upon in class to represent the diverse view. They don't like it when students ask them questions about what it's like to be black, what it's like to be diverse. They don't want to represent their diverseness, which I can completely understand. I sure as hell didn't when I was Mm. in college. But that means it's racist to not want diversity. It's racist to expect students to represent their diverseness in anything except having a certain amount of melanin and walking across the quad, apparently, which is not what people said. The diverseness is supposed to be representing the diverse view in class, which instead is usually more represented by white, woke students, something many, many professors have seen, including Mm. me. And so none of this makes any sense whatsoever. So the idea is supposed to be that you pull this policy back and use other strategies to make sure that students get into schools as good as they possibly can, while getting past the idea that it's Yale or jail. And so in the University of California, with the ban on racial preferences, a lot of kids who would have been admitted to Berkeley or UCLA, the big flagship schools, after that were admitted to the second string schools, which are perfectly good schools. And to say that those schools mean that you're sending kids to the swamps is kind of an insult to all the administrators and faculty who work and do such a good job on campuses like UC San Diego, UC Santa Barbara. Those places aren't swamps at all. And so it was seen that a lot of the kids who went to those places did better in terms of their grades than they would have at, say, Berkeley or UCLA. The media very carefully kept a lid on that back in the early and mid-2000s when we were seeing what was going to happen when there were no longer racial preferences. Now, a study has come out recently that actually made me laugh. I was sitting there drinking my coffee, and I read the implications twice because I wasn't sure this is really what it meant. Somebody's gone back and studied what happened to those kids who went to, say, UCSD instead of Berkeley. And with a lot of them, 
the truth is they didn't do any better in STEM subjects than they were doing at Berkeley or UCLA. And so kids from a demographic who would have made a certain kind of performance in STEM at Berkeley, that same kind of kid, seven beats later, wasn't doing much better. The argument of this person, to the extent that I can glean it, and this is an economist, I'm assuming that this is somebody who knows how to make their case clearly, is that therefore that person should have been admitted to Berkeley or UCLA because they wouldn't have done very well, but at least they would be at Berkeley and UCLA, Mm. where, and I can't quite follow, I mean, maybe that the idea is to make the numbers of black and brown students at those schools higher because that's just a good thing in itself, or it's because they would make better connections at Berkeley and UCLA than they would make at UCSD and UCSB, which I frankly don't completely see the logic in. But that's what this white economist was putting forth as goodly. This is this person's good news. And you don't hear anything from what I can see about how the kids did in the humanities, which I'll just bet you was better. So, you know, we're in a really, really weird place with this kind of thing. Yeah, well, it's if you're not following the the moment to moment evidence of this on Twitter, you you can be forgiven for not (laughs) knowing how weird it is. But I just saw I think yesterday it was that the University of Chicago English Department will only admit black studies students to their next graduate class. I didn't dive deep into that story. I don't know if you know more about it, but I mean, you don't even have to wait for this kind of thing to backfire. I mean, this is mm-hmm. just bad. This is just turning the gun around and shooting yourself in the face. I mean, how can the University of Chicago think that this will make their university look good? Maybe this testifies to the fact that the English department has gone rogue and has no relationship to the administration at the University of Chicago, which we should say, you know, up until this moment, had distinguished mm-hmm. itself for not capitulating to the, the moral panic mm-hmm. that we've been talking about. I mean, they, they published a, now a fairly famous letter of free speech principles. I mean, what has been your experience? I mean, now we're under COVID, so it's, it's hard to say what is the new normal, but when you were teaching class, mm-hmm. were you encountering this in the kinds of things that, you know, someone like Jonathan Haidt and, you know, mm-hmm. Nicholas Christakis and other people have been observing on college campus? Was that showing up, you know, literally at your door? And mm-hmm. were you noticing that, I mean, that this, is, this seems to be fairly well attested, that you know, at least with certain polls that have been run, that the most woke people in our society are well-educated white people? At the moment, I mean, it's not even you know, when you're talking about the real defund the police crowd, you're talking about white people in Brooklyn or, or Seattle or Portland. What has been your experience as a professor mm-hmm. dealing with this issue? That, yeah, I would have commented on it even if I hadn't been primed to by reading about it in the press. And it was all almost bizarrely abrupt. The first cracks in the plaster were in about 2013, 2013, 2014, when on campus the terms safe space and microaggression became common coin. And I noticed that it it was infecting discussion. And at the time, I found it sometimes a little bit difficult in that a student could bring up something like that and it would discourage the more timid students from saying anything. But it was just a minor sea change. But then 2016 is when things really got different, and it was partly 
what happened with the presidential election, but it actually happened before that. There was a snowball that had been getting bigger. And yes, I found exactly that discussions became a lot harder to really get going about anything interesting, i.e. the sorts of things that touch on the issues that we're talking about now, because a certain kind of student was so convinced that a certain kind of message was the only one that ought to be entertained. And it's what I'm now calling the elect message. And without a doubt, that tended very strongly to be very white students, not the brown students sitting there kind of looking at them and sometimes telling me in private that they didn't agree. It was the white ones. And I had other students, white students in my office, starting then telling me that there were theses that they weren't going to write, that there were comments they wouldn't have made in class because they don't want to be savaged because they're not the type. And I would say that um, the one time that I had a student go off on me somewhat, many people would assume that it would be a black student who didn't like my writings about race. That so far hasn't happened. They, you know, they save that for when I'm not around. The one time I almost had a conflict in class was with a white guy who had the nerve to start white explaining me certain things that I needed to know about the plight of poor black people. And, you know, I'm not going to say what his name was, but it was a name that sounds like the name of a rich white boy in an old comic book. His name was something that sounds kind of like Reginald von Rensselaer. And Reginald von Rensselaer was telling me what I needed to know about black people and the SAT. And that's when I knew something had really changed. Well, so we've covered a lot of ground here. I don't know that we have offered solutions apart from merely having more conversations like this and promulgating this attitude of um, uh, intrepid, sacred cow goring to the ends of the earth. What else can people do to help break this spell? Yeah. You know, I think it's gotten to the point. We've had about six months to see how far this sort of thing could actually go. And it's time for a few good men, except we're going to talk about a few good people, to start standing up and showing that the sky will not fall in if we stand up for ourselves. And so a little little interesting crack in the plaster, Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's has some products called things like Trader Jose, you know, Trader mm-hmm. Ming, if it's some Chinese food. Just this little joke. There's no caricature drawn on the package. They just call it that. A certain young, woke person had learned her elect, you know, elect ideology and started a petition against Trader Joe's saying that calling something Trader Jose is racist. And you can imagine the litany of justifications for that idea. Well, just as many people don't think that calling something Trader Jose when it's Mexican food is racist, and many of them are Mexican and they just think of it as a little joke, just like more people like that think of Speedy Gonzalez as a little joke than many white woke people who've tried to cancel Speedy Gonzalez. So Trader Joe's first bent, and then they decided to just ignore it. And we're still going to Trader Joe's, and I don't think anybody could say that that's encouraging racism on the march. It's a little joke that many people of color have thoroughly enjoyed themselves. And Sam, it's like a, it's like a shark. You know, if you, I'm told this, that if mm. a shark comes at you, then the way that you get rid of the shark is that they go away if you bop them on the nose. I really think that we need to start thinking of the elect as like sharks. And I don't mean physical altercations of any kind. It should have nothing to do with your physical hand. 
But we need to think of those people as sharks coming toward you who will go away. It doesn't require destroying them. It doesn't require anything that grand. Just bop them on the nose. Except the bop on the nose is, no, I'm sorry. I'm not a racist. And then just watch them. And they're going to yell. They're going to scream. They're going to put you on Twitter. They're going to summon their friends to put you on Twitter. And the weeks will go by. And pretty soon, life will go on as it is. It's time for us to start taking these people, looking at them coming, having our backs straight, looking them in the eye, and metaphorically, do it rhetorically, but metaphorically, bop them on the nose. And if they don't go away, bop them one more time. And I think what we'll see is that a lot of these people will swim away, and they will let us create our own progressivism in the ways that we see fit, and they'll understand that calling us a dirty name is not going to make the world the way they want it. Do you really think we're at the point where we can give that prescription to everyone? I mean, so for instance, I've taken, as you know, elaborate pains to make myself uncancelable. Right? Mm -hmm. so that's why I can have a podcast like this. Mm -hmm. and, and the podcast is, in fact, you know, one of my defenses against being canceled. But it's hard for me to recommend that a professor who you know, especially one who doesn't have tenure, but I, I guess even tenure might not be a sufficient bulwark against all possible cancellation. It's hard for me to recommend someone who's in the, the standard employee-employer relationship to any institution, whether it's a, a university or a, a media property, that they follow my example directly. Mm -hmm. I feel inclined. I mean, maybe I, it's really a question for you because you, I feel like you you have may have a better sense of, of what's possible or, or likely mm -hmm. in institutions at the moment. But I feel a, a little sheepish recommending to one and all that everyone be as unfiltered, as, a, in my framing, intellectually honest as I attempt to be mm -hmm. on these issues. Yep. And of course, it depends on what one's circumstances are. Easier for a tenured professor than an untenured one. Although, after a while, you start having safety in numbers. You know, after certain people start standing up, then other people will do it, and it'll get to the point that you've got a Spartacus moment where there are too many people resisting for it to be convenient to fire or suspend a large number of people. In terms of employment, once again, it's the kind of thing that requires modeling. It has to be a certain large number of people who start doing it. It has to become a meme in society that you are just not going to allow it. Some people more than others. Some people are in more of a position to put up with a suspension in employment than others, for example. I could be argued to be saying that this is a matter of privilege, but this is the thing. Most of this discussion is taking place among people who are relatively privileged. That's the whole point. And so, mm -hmm. to the extent that you can manage it, stand up for yourself. And also, some of this is not just a matter of employment. It's not whether or not your school puts out some diversity statement and you refuse to sign it. Although that often is something where, okay, you'd have some social opprobrium, but, you know, pursue your hobby, you know, binge watch 30 Rock and, you know, go into the dark web and find the ones that they took away because it had a little bit of joke blackface in it. You know, mm. just weather it. But also just in conversations. It needs to be the way we treat conversations that run aground upon religion. After a certain point, you say we shouldn't discuss this because we're not going to convince each other. These are matters of the gut. In the same way with a lot of these issues, you have to say, no, I'm not a racist, and you're not going to convince me that I am, but let's not talk about it, because I know we can't agree here. And the person will at first insist that this means that they're right and that you have work to do, and tell them, no, 
I'm not going to do any work. I don't think you're right. Let us move on. And the person cannot have any sense that they've had a victory. They have to have a sense that they didn't get through to you. And that's as far as you're going to get with the usual elect person. They're not going to concede your point of view. You're not trying to convert them, but you can't let them pollute, for example, your social environments with the idea that it's their job to convert you. And if they don't, they're going to call you a racist and take a sip of their tea. No. And so even just on the conversational level, teaching this kind of person that they can't win by just calling you a dirty name is the beginning. And even that would start trickling up into what people try to do on a more institutional level. We've got to get these people out of the notion that teaching us that we're heathen is the way to dismantle racism or, frankly, to dismantle anything in the world. They have to be taught that their current confidence as of being in the wake of George Floyd and their current sense of hope that they can make the world their way is unfounded. And the result will be not their disappearance, but that they will go back to exactly where they were in roughly 2010, sitting at the table as one point of view. They can be kind of a Bernie Sanders. It's useful to listen to people from the extremes because often their ideas are ones that are of benefit. And maybe sometimes their ideas are the way we're going to be in 100 years. But they can't have it all in one blow and certainly not by trying to make people cry. They think they're doing good, but they're not. Almost all of us know it. And it's time mm. that that kind of person was told. Actually, you brought up blackface with, with reference to 30 Rock. And that, that's an interesting test case for me in thinking about this because, I mean, it's just, you know, I think most people's feeling about blackface is it's not important that anyone really have the freedom to dress up in blackface. I don't feel a major infringement on no. my liberty that I can't go trick-or-treating with my kids in blackface. But <laughs> the fact that even I am disposed to give in there, apparently for all time, does seem to me to be a sign of just picking our battles and capitulating. I had to explain to my 11-year-old not long ago the problem with blackface. Mm -hmm. And I found it surprisingly hard to do. Yep in the presence of a child, yep. and to honestly do it, because, you know, she, in, in this case, she and a friend wanted to, the friend wanted to dress up like a cup of coffee, and, and my <laughs> daughter was the cream or something like that. Right. It had nothing to do with race, but when alerted to the problem of putting makeup on her face to look like a cup of coffee, that occasioned this conversation. What is, feel free to deprogram me on this, on this <laughs> topic, but it just seems to me that at some point in the future, it has to be inoffensive if you want to dress up like a historical figure who had darker skin than you do to put makeup on so as to accomplish that. This mm -hmm. is the Megyn Kelly moment of, well, what's wrong with blackface? Well, you know, if you want to dress up like Diana Ross, why can't you put on makeup? It seems to me that it really should matter that we know that a person who at the office party five years ago was simply trying to dress up like one of their favorite people, you know, be it Diana Ross or mm -hmm. any other black figure, that that was not an expression of racism. Mm -hmm. It was, certainly wasn't an expression of cluelessness with respect to the possible outcomes once, the, you know, those photos come to light, given everyone's association with the history of blackface. But the idea that it, our, our non-racist future entails the maintenance of this taboo 
seems crazy to me. So I, well, I, I wonder if you share that that vision. Sam, or, I think or am you're, I just obtuse? You're making too much sense. I mean, obviously you're right, and I think you know, 99 out of 100 people listening to this understand that you're right. I mean, the rationale, and it's funny. I'm trying to think of how I would explain to a little white kid what this is. The rationale is supposed to be you don't want to recall minstrel shows, and that's understandable, except that it's at the point where almost nobody alive ever saw a minstrel show. A minstrel show is something that was happening essentially a hundred years ago and before. They were terrible things, but it's something that we know from mostly static photographs. And it is a history that one might consider. One needs to know about it. I recommend that if you want to see a minstrel show, it's funny how much people talk about this. Have you seen one? There's a film, and I kid you not, it's called Mammy. Mm -hmm. Al Jolson was in it. And you actually mm -hmm. see them doing a minstrel show. It's the one place I can think of where you see what it really was clearly recorded on film. So, okay, there were, there were minstrel shows. But is the idea that we can never again have white people put brown makeup on in order to look more like a brown person who they admire because the idea is to look like them? You can't do it with skin because of what Al Jolson and Eddie Cantor did, obviously that makes no sense. I frankly think that the oversensitivity we've developed about it over, especially about the past 10 years, is because there's a certain kind of person who feels it as their mission to identify racism in society, and because that can be difficult sometimes if you want to go beyond, say, the police, because things are changing so constantly, including a president having been elected twice who was black, including by the sorts of people who are often called racists, i.e. the whites, quote-unquote, out there who helped elect him, it means that you have to start grabbing at straws. And so that means that if there are a couple of places on a very witty and very woke sitcom like 30 Rock, where somebody is in brown face as a very layered, many quotation marks joke, even that can't be shown because it is racist and it is unaware of the fact that somebody was dancing around in cork make up a hundred years ago on stage entertaining people who are now very, very dead. Obviously, no, that is not where we want to go in the future. And I'm disappointed about the way it is now. I was, um, when I was in college, I shouldn't say this, but I've written about it, and so it's already out there. A friend of mine and I went to a Halloween party as George and Louise Jefferson. And hmm. I <laughs> was Louise, and I wore Moo Moo, etc., Mm. And he was George. He was white. And to be George, he put on some brown makeup. I hung out with people who we would today call very woke when I was in college. I lived in a dorm, Demarest Hall, for those of you who went to Rutgers, that was the wokest spot on the campus, reviled by many of the other students because it was the wokest spot on campus. Back then, we were barely even saying PC yet. When did I become old? But in mm. any case, it's the woke place. And we were walking around like that. No one said a thing. I am reasonably confident that no one thought a thing, especially because there were some other, some other costumes at that party that involved white people browning up for very witty, layered reasons. And no one said a thing. I've got pictures of all of this. In 1985, we were understanding that there's a such thing as blackface. If anybody had walked down looking you know, like that black scarecrow with the kinky wig, that person mm. would have been expelled. You know, nobody would have ever spoken to that person again. But the idea that if you're trying to be a brown person, you can't get out some brown makeup and put it on your face, that would have sounded like science fiction in 1985. And we thought of ourselves as living at the end of time, just like everybody 
now does. The difference between 1985 and now is not that we were less enlightened then. It's that something has gone off the rails over the past 10 years from now. Yeah. So I would have to agree with you on this, Sam. And luckily, my girls already have enough melanin so they could look like a cup of coffee without putting right. on makeup. But I, I hear you. I feel you. Well, uh, on that um, smallish <laughs> point of <laughs> where even I am inclined to pick my battles, I think we can bring it into the end zone, John. It's been so great to have you on the podcast finally. And um, I await your book with, it's uh, not too much to say, bated breath, because it, <laughs> it is, uh, whenever it arrives, it will be um, absolutely ne necessary reading for so many people. And, and uh, feel free to tap me to help promote it in any way I can, because I, I just, uh, we need more of you out there. And um, this is just so great to have a voice of sanity to this degree to engage. So please, thank you for doing what you're doing, and, and please keep it up. Sam, thank you so much. And chapter six starts tomorrow morning. This thing is going to keep coming, and I will definitely be in touch. Thank you for letting me do this. Mm -hmm.